I recorded this interview with Jill Meza back in May, while we were still in the throes of emergency distance learning. Now that we know most schools in the U.S. will start the new school year with remote learning again, teachers and school administrators are taking the lessons they learned last spring to retool their curriculum, think about how they evaluate students, and continue to emphasize social-emotional well-being. I got to speak with Jill about how to take risks, and she shares her secrets to innovation in the time of COVID, like how to keep elementary school students engaged during remote learning, and a great idea for making reading playlists for students. The ideas she shared with me are even more relevant now, and I hope they inspire you as you plan for another season of Remote School. We encourage kids all the time, like, take risks, you're going to fail, it's okay. But as educators, like, as people, that's really scary. Everybody's a, a critic of remote school, right? And there's so many different inputs as to, like, what is and isn't being done in the right way. I feel like at the same time, maybe we can all be a little more humble when we work the best. We're making sure that we're really, like, inclusive. This pandemic has forced students to learn at home and educators have had to make a fast pivot to remote teaching. This season, I'm talking with teachers and students across the United States to find the silver linings of our situation, to find out what matters most in school, and to use those lessons as we reimagine the future of education. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in education and the workplace. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. Jill Meza is the Director of Libraries and Research and Upper School Librarian at Montclair Kimberly Academy, a PK-12 independent school in Montclair, New Jersey. She has served as a school librarian and in both elementary and high schools in Connecticut and North Carolina, taught summer reading and project-based learning workshops to middle schoolers in New York City, and worked in book selling, publishing, and public libraries. She loves exploring the intersection of creativity, curiosity, and inquiry, both in school with her students and colleagues outside with her husband and two boys. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I'm really excited to hear your perspectives. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you've spent much of your life working with books, publishing, selling as a librarian. Um, What's the transition to online learning and digital resources been like for you? So um, while books are still like super important, they're a pretty small percentage of what I do. Um, So, and, and are such a, like just one small but core component of our program. Um, so I would say as far as the, the shift to digital resources, um, it's, it's been pretty seamless and relatively unnoticeable, um, only because um, absolutely our kids still use print books abundantly, but thankfully we had all of the structures and platforms in place um, for our students to access most everything, every kind of format of information digitally. And they're really facile with that already. So it really, as far as like that very small part, just meant bulking up the like our collections in those spaces, but it's something we were already kind of comfortably accessing. I feel like is a little bit of a theme for anything as you go online. Like if you have some structures in place in the real world, um, the transitions, uh, I don't mean they're seamless, but they're much less insurmountable. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. I think I think if you have like a system or a mindset established, everything else is fine, right? It's not a yeah. skill, it's an attitude. 
Well, and I feel like I think about that a lot right now, but also like always have with our library because um, a lot of people do tend to associate libraries with um, either the like physical collection or the physical space. And I'm, I have the luxury of having like a really spectacular physical space, but we built that space about four years ago. And so before it, you know, I, I always tried to drive home like, yeah, we're going to have this amazing space, but like we already have an amazing program. Um, so that your, your program can kind of transcend, you know, boundaries like that. Again, like my job in school is a little bit different in that I, I teach, um, but then I also, you know, am, am in a like more supportive collaborative role, um, also. So I've gotten to see it from a two, a few different aspects and, um, the course that I teach, I teach in the fall. So I actually haven't had to teach my course. I'm in a collaborative platform, but I have had to help support uh, teachers shift midstream in research projects, um, from taking it from in-person uh, to remote. So um, similarly, that transition has been, been pretty smooth um, because we had the structures in place. Um, but I think one of the things that's been in my mind so cool about it, and I'm not it's not without its drawbacks, but just that every, all of the teachers I work with on it have had to take some risks too and take on parts of it that they um, maybe were reluctant to take on before because it wasn't their strong suit. So like now we're all screencasting the lessons. It's been a nice um, forced risk taking to, for us to all kind of figure out the best way to support the kids in this environment. That's so interesting to use those exact words from another interview that I had earlier is like, no one will change unless they're forced to do it. Um, but then also this idea of risk taking. And why do you think we didn't take the risk before? Well, I mean, I think that some of it, and again, I'm looking at this from, from the aspect of somebody who is working um, with a group of teachers collaboratively. So I'm looking at it from almost, um, we had like such a good thing going um, that rather than it being like, oh, we had to force them, it was more, well, some of us were comfortable with it, so of course we'll do that part. And now because it was more of a necessity and we all need to kind of react more quickly than usual, and maybe just because we're forced to take more risks in general, everybody was more comfortable with taking risks everywhere. <laughs> so I think in that case, it was more just we had safety nets. It's easier to walk into a classroom and wing it, whereas right now, like, you know, I think one of the things that's been probably the hardest for everyone teaching remotely is just that echo chamber that you feel when you go into a Zoom call or a Google Meet. And, you know, even the classes that are chatty chatty in person, um, for whatever reason, whatever made that happen, that magic happen in the classroom, like, they're, they're not always translating, you know, and, um, so you're kind of forced <laughs> um, yeah, to figure so out a way to make that happen. Definitely by necessity. Um, but it's interesting you said that you're in a cohort that works together and there's some people that were sort of adventuring out, trying some things. And, and maybe the risk taking is easier for some folks because everyone's doing it. Do you think that's part of it? Or because everyone's making mistakes? I'm, I'm sort of curious, like, what is it that's encouraging the innovation and the change? that's different now than in the past. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that I think it's probably peer pressure in like a good way um, that, that we're all feeling more comfortable taking risks because everybody is. 
as much as on one side, everybody's a, a critic of remote school, right? And there's so many different inputs as to like what is and isn't being done in the right way. I feel like at the same time, maybe we can all be a little more humble. Like the students are so much more forgiving. And like I feel like in my school, we already have a culture that is comfortably like exchanging critiques in a positive way. Um, but I feel like I see that like an even more positive way than usual. You know, like students, I'll ask them, what's working for you? And they're able to really think thoughtfully and share it in a way that's not like the venting way they might have in real life. And I, I just think everybody's recognizing everyone's humanity maybe a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, what we're doing right now is much more humane the scale, the timing, the pacing, the expectation, the vulnerability. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting that we didn't have that vulnerability. Everyone had their armor up, you know. I didn't know a lot of teachers, including myself, like, I got to get it right. Otherwise, they're going to take me down. I'm like swimming with sharks, you know, or the kids are like, I've got to get it right. Otherwise, I'm going to get a bad grade or people will judge me or whatever. And I think it's interesting once we put down that armor and become vulnerable, how much more human we become and how much deeper maybe the learning can be. It's really interesting. Absolutely. So, you know, I've heard uh, you're a librarian, you love books as well as all the data and all the other organizational stuff that's way outside my pay grade. I can't figure that out. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, there's these arguments that you hear maybe in reaction to technology in the last 10 years or so, 15 years, that students, you know, learn best when they're using paper. You know, they're writing with pencil on paper, um, there's worksheets, there's things like that. Um, and there are definitely benefits and downsides to that approach, obviously now, because you can't. Um, but what advice would you give to teachers who are struggling to transition from paperwork to digital texts and assignments? I don't know. For me, um, when you're thinking about, okay, I can't do paper, what are my options? Then you kind of inherently get to think about or are forced to think about an authentic audience, almost every alternative to paper, I'm sure I could think of an exception, feels like there's just an inherent authentic audience, whereas papers, almost always the audience is the teacher. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have a life beyond that, um, or couldn't have a life beyond that. So you'll spend a lot of time figuring out what the options are and, and potentially how you would assess that differently, right? So a lot of front-end work. But once you've done it, like the trade-off is you've got this built-in authentic audience and kids are going to see the purpose so much more quickly, so much more easily, and they're going to enjoy it more. But I, one of the things I'm really interested in in education is is purpose in, for students as well as like what that means related to the social emotional side of learning. So, I mean, I often focus in on that as it relates to research and guiding students through research. Um, but, you know, in learning in general, this past fall, we had um, Mary Helen Imordino Yang come to speak with us at InService. Um, and she provided this whole talk that was very much focused on the biological side, the brain research behind the importance of social emotion, the social emotional side of learning and kids, like how the brain synapses are actually firing differently when they have this emotional connection. So I kind of went down a rabbit hole on that, but it just, again, I feel like the trade-offs are so huge, um, even if it feels a little bit nerve-wracking or time-consuming on the front end, then you've just got all of this amazing stuff built in the back end. 
Yeah, I love that idea of providing purpose. It's so great. I think so much of what we ask our kids to do is so disconnected from reality and from their actual lives. It's really interesting. Um, in fact, I was just reading a post on LinkedIn this morning. Um, this education uh, researcher was uh, posting the questions and the instructions from this year's AP, uh, I think it was human geography uh, test. And you know, it's asking questions about food deserts and stuff. And you have 25 minutes to finish these questions. He's like, why don't we have the kids design a business or a solution to this problem and implement it as a means of assessing their knowledge and understanding? Because then you're actually providing a purpose. There's a reason behind all this. People's lives will actually be affected. You know, like you, you said, like on, on a paper, like a research paper, it's like you're forcing the kids to go to spy school. They're making work for your eyes only. <laughs> you know, there's no other wider audience. And like, I got to tell my kids, I'm like, why go through all this pain and suffering and blood, sweat and tears if someone's not going to see it and use it? You know, if you're just going to throw it in the trash when you're done. So um, really interesting and, yeah, to think and about. I think, and I think you introduced another aspect of it there. Kind of like, it's not just the inherent authentic audience, but then also like layering on top of it. It just gives you that opportunity to have the kids shape their their work through their own their own question, like a personally relevant question, not a question you give them, um, which is huge. Like just adding that little piece of, I'm gonna ask you to frame this with a question because you have some more facility in how you can express it at the end. And I'm gonna give you the opportunity to shape that question. Like I can have the same learning goal, but I, I, I'm gonna have an opportunity to let you make it something more meaningful to you. Um, this is really great stuff to think about as we develop our lessons. I think, you know, a lot of us are just kind of scrambling to figure it out or like, what's the alternative, you know, in emergency mode. But as we think to next year, when odds are we're all hop to be on remote learning again, you know, how can we make this purposeful? How can we integrate it with the social emotional like you're talking about? Um, and while we're at it, since we're going through all this extra effort, why not continue and, and do it the way we really wanted it to be or based on the models that we've seen people do and always thought we couldn't do for whatever reason um, because of the standardized test, for example. Um, so that's sort of interesting to see that gone and out of the way and how much creativity can happen from the teachers as well as the students when that's not there. So interesting. Um, speaking of which, um, you know, we worked together for um, this project you were doing with your students um, called May Term. Is that right? The right term? Yeah, um, yeah. and um, maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. Like, what's the purpose and how does that work exactly? Sure. So all of our seniors uh, do May term. Uh, they have the last five weeks in a typical year, this year four, of, of the school year where they have finished their time in the building and they set off uh, to do, you know, a capstone project um, to use terminology used in other schools. Um, in a typical year, they have a few different programs they can follow. Uh, so the two uh, of the pro the two programs that I run are the Creative Inquiry Program uh, and the Internship Program. The there are also options to travel through some programs at the school uh, to uh, intern at one of our other campuses as as a teacher and also to do community engagement or service work. Um, I lied, there's one more. Um, and there's also a Startup 101 program where uh, they work together um, in an entrepreneurial way, um, which kind of shifts from year to year what their focus is. So, um, so that's the, the basic backbone of it. Um, this year, uh, you know, everybody was on their path and we all had these amazingly organized structures in place where 
the kids had pitched their ideas to faculty panels along with their faculty mentor and you know mapped out their calendars and lined up everything I see and it coming I see it coming so meaningful uh, and then you know of course uh, this happened so um, you know we took a little bit of time to figure out okay well actually how many weeks are the kids going to have what what does this need to be and as you know like along the way we never quite knew how long we were going to be out of the building um and especially at the beginning when we were trying to make these decisions to shape the program we we really didn't know yet so um so long story short all of the kids had to reapply and we had to come up with like the super streamlined but hopefully still really meaningful process um that the kids end up having about you know a week to re-envision and re-pitch and for some kids it was a few tweaks to figure out um what this would look like at home and for other kids it was starting from like complete scratch so um we're now in week three of our four week may term um and again it's usually five and uh, it's it's really been pretty spectacular what's not different about it is the kids are usually out of the building anyway um so it's always this kind of like we send them forth and then we you know have a bunch of places where we can connect but we hope they're all doing okay and doing meaningful amazing things and then we reconvene the last week at this symposium and it's we, us we usually call it a circus but like in the best way um where it all just like comes out into the public again um and it's pretty amazing. So this year's, to me, it's felt more connected than in previous years because everybody wants connection um, in ways that before, you know, some people still want a connection and so they signed up for those programs that would provide it. And some people were like, yes, I can go write my novel in a coffee shop for a month. Um, and <laughs> I don't know that anybody is like, yes, I can hang out in my room again. <laughs> so um, so it's the, the remote, shift has actually, um, I think, brought up in your theme of what things can we carry over. Definitely some some nice lessons and things that I hope we can continue when, when we're back to regular school. Yeah, I'm definitely missing the experiential learning piece. Um, what I do with my journalism students and my film students and my photography kids, the whole purpose is to get out into the world. And I think that's really um, the best way to learn because we get out of our bubbles, I think, if we can get that set up. So we're really missing that piece, trying to make that work. But um, so this is in May for seniors. Now that you, we've been talking about all this and you're thinking about, you know, the authentic audience and the purpose and the connection, do you feel like this might change um, moving forward with your school now that like, maybe some standardized tests are out of the way? I mean, um, we have been in conversation about and studying the role of exams in our school. And um, we're still a school that has both mid-year and final exams, whether it relates to how we administer exams or don't administer exams. Um, you know, obviously, if you look at the full picture of like, what do we have space for? Um, what, are, what are the ways you can look at cumulative assessment, right? We've shifted the conversation less from like, what do we do? What do other schools do? What best fits us around exams to changing that word for cumulative assessment? I know it's part of the conversation and I, and I think it will continue to be, you know, at a middle school or an upper school, like you've got your schedule and you follow it. And like those kids are pretty self-sufficient. 
I have a five-year-old and an 11-year-old, both of whom go to the other two campuses of our school. Um, and my five-year-old's in pre-K. He's this very compliant, um, like cheerful kid who's always into everything. And it's all we can do to get him to stop from like hanging up on the meats and running away screaming if there's a video of his teachers. So this kid that like loves school and loves everyone, but like he hates everything remote. Wow. Um, and again, I don't know how much he's indicative of like his age group, but what's been, what I think is so something really cool that they've done is they are making a great effort, like encouraging them with provocations and experiential things so that I'm able to kind of like skim what they've provided and then really just push them down that route. So like they sent a butterfly kit home and then there's all sorts of things he's doing around that. So I can kind of divorce him from the screen as much as this whole nother layer of remote like parenting slash teaching slash working that I'm, I have to actually physically do it with him. Um, but like he could be occupied by those caterpillars turning into chrysalises for a long time and then going to find them outside. So I feel like there's, there's something to this looking at while we're remote, are there ways to keep experiential for all ages, especially for the little kids that like can't really learn any other way. <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, I don't think it's any different. It's just a matter of extent of how under wraps and in control we seem to be <laughs> on the surface. Like, I think, you know, just look at a faculty meeting like <laughs> at a public school. I mean, it's like, or maybe private schools too, um, like paying attention, who's squirming, who really wants to be there. Um, I'd rather be doing something and making something and working on my lessons or collaborating with my peers instead of doing this stuff. And so, um, that's really fascinating. I, I think it cuts across all levels. And I'm so glad you brought that up because most of the folks that I've spoken with so far have been middle and upper school teachers. Um, and elementary is a very different world. And yeah. my mom was an elementary teacher and I visited her class one time and I'm like, I don't know how you do this. It's, it's yeah. insane. So, um, really, you know, I, um, elementary school teachers just have this like incredibly um, challenging job at middle and upper school or high school we we feel unmoored um, but we at least have some structures that can translate and they just have so few that can um, and at the high school level our audience is our students but at the at the elementary school level our audience is also parents and so that's a whole nother layer for teachers who now are teaching with the parents in the room um, my, my cousin's daughter is a uh, kindergartner and it was interesting that when she like finally articulated why she hates the the google meets she does not like that there are she knows there are parents around and she does not like that um which i thought was interesting coming from a six-year-old like i wouldn't you know i would not have thought of that so. wow i mean it just goes to show you like how independent they are like i'm right. a real human right. being i'm a person like trust yep. me yep absolutely right. Even that little, like, definitely there's, there's those feelings and that, that reality for them. And I think we forget about that for like 13 and 14 and 15 year olds as well. Um, I mean, everybody needs some guidance and support, of course, but yeah, treating them as like a real human. Um, I, it's interesting. I want to get back to this idea, like you're rethinking, evaluating the students. You don't want to call it testing. I think that's interesting. And I think for a lot of people, that's a scary thing because it's messy it's unfamiliar. It's not precise. Like I can put like a multiple choice Scantron through the machine and it spits out the result in a second. And I, 
it's right or it's wrong. Um, there's no gray areas. There's no blurry lines. Like, how does that work for a high-performing school where, you know, college apps are on the line and, you know, class rankings or scholarships are on the line? Like, how does that work? What are the different things we should consider um, around cumulative assessment and how we approach it in our school and, and how it matches up with, with our mission and the way we, we do school? And so my subgroup that I, I worked on was related to looking at alternate like just what peer schools are doing. I had the opportunity along with um, a couple of my colleagues and a couple students who, who worked with us to just talk to teachers um, and administrators and students um, at a lot of different schools, mostly independent, but not all um, around the school just to, you know, hear what they do. Um, and I can say nobody, nobody has found the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, everybody's like, yes, we are looking at that too. Um, all the questions you just asked, right? And no one has the same model, which is also interesting and kind of freeing that if you can really look at like, what are the different boxes we're checking or need to check, right? In order to like fulfill our obligation to our students in a lot of different ways. If you start from there, like, what are the options? Like, what does that mean for your calendar? What does that mean for format? What does that mean for timing? also happen to be living in a year where like we didn't have we're not having final exams this year right like standardized tests are being administered in different ways or not at all um and will you know will we have mid-year exams next year you know i'm excited that we're studying it right now just so that whatever we do we can use it as a test case to see like but what did that look like i'm curious so you guys got started on this before the pandemic what's at stake why are you doing this our head of upper school um, has always been like deeply invested in looking at what kind of school schedule um, is going to mitigate student stress and also honor like the different parts of who we are as a school. And very recently, like not this year, but, but the year before, it was one of those school calendar years where we had an extra week before winter break. And we had always had mid-year exams in mid-January. It had been that way because it had been that way. <laughs> uh, and so um, he had said, you know what, what if we had a somewhat shorter first semester, but not as short as it might be because we've got this bonus week this year, have exams before winter break and just see what that does. So we had done that and it was really successful. Um, we did it again this year with some shifts in reaction to some things that teachers and students felt could be like improve it even more. And so, um, and so now that it's becoming a little more like, well, why would we backtrack from this on the timing? Then we started to think about assessment and cumulative assessment and traditional exams versus, uh, you know, other formats and what our kids will actually see in college what actually will impact their learning in positive ways. Yeah, it's, uh, everything cascades from there. You move one little block, one little piece of the, the education industrial complex, and it just ripples out because um, everything is so interrelated. That's really interesting. And I, and I love the research that you guys are doing at those other schools about, you know, the assessment, what's working, and nobody knows and nobody is satisfied um, and they keep searching. And I'm thinking like, isn't that... <clears throat> Education, yep. isn't that learning, Absolutely. right? There's a, a great slogan this podcast I listened to uh, called Invisibilia, produced by NPR, and they had a slogan that says, no easy answers, just good mm -hmm. questions. 
And I, I think that. that's what you guys are doing right now. You're on this quest, this continual kind of quest to evolve and keep changing. And that's what we expect of our students, right? We talk about lifelong learning. You know, nothing is static, obviously. <laughs> you know, just because we've done it that way doesn't mean it's the right or the best way. And and I'm sort of curious about this process. You you mentioned that your head of school was kind of like this uh, project that he had based from his research, uh, his PhD research. And I'm wondering where the idea for change comes from. Do you feel like it it comes from up top? Like you have to have like a visionary leader for this to happen? Do you feel like it has to come from grassroots from a bunch of teachers who band together and say, we want this to happen? Does it come from like parent pressure? Like, what do you think is the, the right formula or dynamic to make positive change happen? Mm. Uh, yes, I think, I don't think it needs to come top down. I think that, um, I think inspiration coming from the top and support and willingness to, um, to both inspire and then ensure the people that you're working with and who are working for you that you just inherently trust them and let them run with it. Um, I, mean, I see that a lot in our building. Um, leaders that are just very willing to, um, to really support and help people with good ideas grow um, and not to promise them it will happen, but to promise them that they'll support them in pursuing it or asking the question or studying it. But I, I was kind of reminded of, of what you said before when you were asking me, well, you know, why do you feel like teachers are risk taking more right now? And, and I do think like that's the thing that ultimately helps change happen um, when it's just something we're all doing. You know, so like a lot of intentionality on the front end about that balance of like people who are who care deeply about it and might be the early adopters for whatever reason, it struck a chord with them and leadership that's supportive. Our school is really um, intentional about a lot of things, which means things move slowly. But at the same time, when we work the best, we're making sure that we're really like inclusive. And again, not that you don't have structures to move forward, but just being very inclusive of getting people into the conversation, ensuring that they feel invested on the front end, not just making them feel invested, but like really investing them, <laughs> you know, not like, hey, what do you think? Okay, great. Like now you're on board, but really taking the time to work through like everybody's angle on something so that by the time you do it, it's like something that feels like it's everybody's because it is. And, and then like, then you're just all doing it. So there's then that peer pressure, which sound is more negative than I want it to sound of just like, this is what we do, you know? That's wonderful. And it sounds like you have a really great supportive collaborative environment already. You have the right conditions to make that happen. That's really, that's great. And I know that not everybody has that. Um, and so that might be a lot of reasons why change or evolution or growth um, is difficult for so many people and so many systems, right? I realized that um, I wrote this long list of questions to ask you, and we haven't touched on any of them yet um, because you've got so many interesting things to say about um, how your school is evolving and, and these ideas. So, um, but I did want to ask you um, about remote work and remote school and some of the silver linings in all of this. And so I'm wondering for you, you know, we talked about there's more bonding you feel like there's more connection ironically um, than maybe before because there's maybe more purpose, the shared trauma <laughs> and we have yeah. more of a personal, we have a connection to everybody because we have this shared experience, right? 
Um, but I'm wondering if there's some silver linings in this that you want to keep as we move forward and think about the future of education. That this um, greater humility um, in, in willingness to take risks. And I, I really do think and hope that we'll carry that over. Um, like, I think that's huge that um, if we can have an environment where again, you said, we, we encourage kids all the time, like, take risks, you're going to fail, it's okay. But as educators, like, as people, that's really scary. And I, th I think, like we said before, one of the things that's really helped people do that right now in ways that before, like, yes, forced, but also because of this, like, just heightened humanity of everybody, like, I do think we're all on high alert for, I don't know what that person is going through right now. Um, and we should go through life that way. <laughs> um, but it's, it's not easy to be empathetic, like 100% of the time, or logistically possible in a classroom. Um, and so I think for this like small time that we've slowed down, and we're like, just out of necessity, um, enabling ourselves to all be like more humane, and considering what's happening behind that like muted out video. I, I feel like that's a really big silver lining. Like I, I was talking to my advisees the other day and I, I thought it was really interesting. Like I hadn't thought about it too much, but they were talking about how like, you know, like in a Zoom meeting, if we were in here with 10 people, I could send a private chat to you. If I was like, oh, Michael, so sorry. Like my video is going out. I promise I'm not going to walk my dog while you talk. Um, but <laughs> But, um, but that, that back channel isn't, isn't built into a Google Meet. Um, it's a whole group chat. And so it's just like these fine little, like I know this doesn't sound like a silver lining, but to me, the idea that we'd have to think about like what's going on with a student to the level of, oh wait, like they've turned off their video, like are their allergies bad? Like were they just crying? Are they sick? <laughs> Um, and like then thinking about, okay, well, if we continue doing this and our platform is Google Meet, like what are some back channels we could set up? Because, you know, my advisees were all talking about different instances where they didn't want to give their teacher the impression they weren't fully there, but they had a reason that they weren't like showing themselves. Um, so again, I think that's a silver lining to really think about the, the small, small things and try and hang on to that. Like, let's be forgiving of each other um, and think beyond what it might seem like at first. Uh, I think that's huge. And, and like the core of what's important in teaching. So. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. It's so great. I, I feel like the humanity piece is really standing out. Um, and I don't know why we've forgotten it. I know that you seem like you have a very supportive school, very supportive administration, colleagues who are on board that you can work with. Not everybody has that. Um, and I'm cu curious what advice you give to other colleagues about this new normal of teaching um, to help them get through the times or make them stronger. Whatever we come up with going forward, um, like we need to like provide different entry points to it in a way that we haven't before. Deve we know the developmental needs of, of kids these age, like we've got this, we're, we're, we're humble, we're learning, we're figuring out how to translate it online. But then that, that teacher may have her own little kids at home. <laughs> um, and, and that's not something that, again, like maybe we should be thinking about that when we're in, in the, 
the real world. Um, we should be. And also those parents who were delivering it for, you just have no idea what the situation is on either end of that. And it's so much more intense. Whatever we do does need to be grounded in like sound pedagogy, but also like hyper aware of the ways it can be adapted to help the person delivering it and the people supporting the kid on the other side. So like, I'll try and give one like really concrete example. I was talking to our, our um, primary school librarian and she was just talking about like uh, all the different thought processes she goes through in providing read alouds for the students. And so the model that they have right now, she's posting a lesson, part of which is a read aloud, um, for the students on her um, library page of their of their learning platform. And that's pre-recorded. And so there's like incredible amounts of thought that have gone into like how she even records this and scans in the book, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then on the back end, she's thought about, okay, well, I did that one, that's only four minutes. So she's she's also offering um, live story times in the afternoon for a, a longer period of time that's interactive and you know about a half hour. So that's a, a totally different way to package it um, that yes, it, it, it honors the kids' needs, but also their families. And then she's also come up with this idea that we could do some playlists where you could string a bunch of recorded read-alouds together. So the family needs that half hour, but like not at four o'clock when it's live. They need it like 9 a.m. when they both have calls. So if they could like click on like the story time playlist, then she's now helped them in like a few different ways. Uh, so I feel like that's a really nice example of Again, like a lot of work and a lot of thought, but hopefully something that like will pay off. That's so brilliant. I love that idea. The playlist of read alouds. It's incredible. You know, it's, it's real important. And so why do we forget that? Like now everything is customized, right? You have to customize uh, the delivery of the content to your consumer, right? Um, and I love that you have, you're considering the ecosystem of, of education. So I guess before it was like teacher to student, one way kind of thing, our plan, you know, our timeline. And this is really great because now we do have to think of the entire ecosystem as we're all confronted with now with food insecurity and the role of schools having to provide food and childcare and psychological services. It's like you can't teach unless all this other stuff is taken care of. And also the well-being of the teachers. Absolutely. Like it's impossible to ask, especially elementary teachers to do the impossible uh, because they are humans and they have their own families and their own concerns. Um, and that's, that's really brilliant. I love that. I love that flexibility. And I wonder how, why we got so far away from that individualized learning that we might've used to have to um, what industrialized <laughs> education, right? The factory of, of education and widgets and data and <laughs> standardized Absolutely. tests, right? back to humanity now, right? Well, Jill Mesa, this is so great talking to you. I love your ideas and you really opened my mind about how to approach and think about uh, remote school. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was great. So far this season, I've heard from teachers across the U.S. about the advantages of remote learning, how it's given us a chance to rethink how we teach and opportunities remote school has given us to change education for the better. But what about the people who matter most in this conversation? Our students. Over the next several episodes, 
I'll talk with middle and high school students about the advantages of remote learning, how they've coped with being cooped up, and advice they have for teachers, their parents, and politicians who think they know about education. Don't miss these episodes. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. If you like the podcast, rate us and write us a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to sign up for our monthly email newsletter. You can find the details on our website, changethenarrative.net. 